Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The debt ceiling debate has absorbed many in Washington over the past few weeks, as well as those whose business prospects are directly tied to federal spending. Now that a deal is done, how are they feeling about it? I spoke with federal contracting expert Larry Allen to find out. I think the good news is now that we have a debt ceiling agreement that the rest of the fiscal year for FY23 should be pretty strong. Congress has appropriated a lot of money, uh, perhaps a record number for acquisitions for this year. We'll have to wait and see what happens when the year ends. But overall, it should be a strong last quarter plus for government contractors. Agencies now have a clear path from here to the end of the year. There shouldn't be any more hiccups. Things may have slowed down a little bit while people dealt with what they thought might be a shutdown due to the debt ceiling. But now that that's over, I think we'll have the traditionally strong fourth quarter that we've had, particularly strong, consistent with the last two years. Which agencies are going to see less dollars, though? I mean, obviously, the GOP members got some of what they wanted, which means cuts to federal agencies. What are you hearing from your clients on that front? So I think the big thing we're going to see on that is civilian agencies going to be, uh, in some cases, they will have uh, less money to spend. Not so much the Department of Defense, at least not right now. But if you're looking at places that have unobligated COVID money, whether it's CMS or Department of Education that maybe was giving grants to state and local governments that have not obligated that money yet. Those are areas where we're going to see money clawed back. So if you've got money that's been sitting in an account unused for a couple of years, maybe it was COVID money, maybe it was infrastructure money, that money, if it's not obligated, it's very vulnerable. That's the type of thing you could expect to see taken away. But in terms of defense expenditures and anything related to national security, that's going to remain there, remain strong. Things that are associated with cybersecurity. Having said that, though, there's a difference between cybersecurity and other IT wish list items. The further away you get from criticality, the more likely it is that you might see funds diminished for allegedly non-critical, non-major IT projects. Yeah, and part of the deal also, they didn't want to call it this, but it seems as if we're returning to cross-the-board cuts, uh, a.k.a. sequestration. <laughs> Are you worried about any of that language going back into spending deals? Well, now we do have the S-word back in the federal vernacular for sequestration. And basically what the budget agreement says is if Congress fails to pass all 12 appropriations bills for FY24 on time, on time being before midnight, September 30th, then there would be an automatic 1% across the board sequestration that would kick in. And nobody would want to see that. That would also affect the Department of Defense. I will say there's a lot of time between now and then for Congress to either pass the bills which is unlikely given their previous track record of not getting appropriations bills done on time. But more likely, 
there's more of an opportunity to maybe backtrack on the sequestration automatic cut. We've already heard some members in the Senate talk about carving out the Department of Defense from those automatic sequestrations. So there's a lot of time left before that would type of before that type of cut would actually take place. But it certainly is a specter, uh, and it's a marker, I think, as much as anything, to try to get appropriations done in a timely manner. And really, that would just benefit everybody. It benefits federal agencies. It benefits taxpayers because it puts in some surety to the budget process. And of course, it, it benefits contractors as well. Yeah, and most of them obviously look quarter to quarter, but uh, is there worry about five years down the road having to do this whole thing again? (laughs) Oh, I think you definitely have to be concerned about coming up with another debt ceiling increase when we get to that point sometime after the next presidential election right now is the amount of time we think we've bought ourselves. Uh, We'll see if that comes to fruition. But I definitely think in terms of overall acquisition dollars, we've been riding a high for the last several years in the government market. Contractors and their government counterparts would do well to understand that we're not going to continually see year over year increases in discretionary spending, whether it's attributable to a debt ceiling increase, an appropriation, a sequestration, what have you. Look, I've been in this market for a long time. I've seen government acquisition dollars go up, but I've also seen them go down. We're kind of due right now for a downturn. So in the out years, really starting as soon as FY24, I would urge some caution in expecting things to continue as they have. There may be some belt tightening and some increased competitiveness. Got it. As far as the frequently asked questions that contractors have for their agency customers, one of the major ones, obviously, is the General Services Administration. You all recently did an analysis on what those FAQ Interact sites are, uh, how how well they're being kept up. Uh, What did you all find? The basic idea behind the GSA Interact sites, I think, is a good one, and that is to serve as a centralized way for different groups of contractors to stay in communication with specific programs at GSA. You have an Interact site for almost every federal acquisition service contract method, whether it's the schedules program, whether it's Alliant, whether it's what Polaris or Oasis. And yet what I've found is if you're not on the schedules program Interact site, then your site isn't being updated very often. Uh, The GSA Schedules Interact site is updated about every 10 to 14 days, whereas Polaris has not been updated in well over a month, six or seven weeks. It's been a little bit over a month now for Oasis Plus. Both of these are procurements that are ongoing right now. Oasis Plus is just about to come out with a final RFP. And yet both of those programs, Polaris and Oasis Plus, were dealt either directly or indirectly setbacks in the Court of Federal Claims about six or seven weeks ago. GSA needs to communicate effectively, clearly, and quickly what they're going to do with those two programs and when that's going to happen. 
They might not have all of the answers now, but you've got an interact program to communicate with industry on what you can say, and there ought to be some capability to update it. Even a program like Alliant 3, where GSA has already said, don't expect an RFP out until FY24, I think an update for that program is worthwhile because it's going to have some of the pricing issues and some of the mentor-protege issues that Oasis Plus and Polaris have. So all three of those sites, I think, need to be updated for GSA to clearly communicate, even if it's just a message that says, hey, we know that these are issues, we're working through them, here's an anticipated timeline for when we're going to be back with answers. That's Larry Allen from Allen Federal Business Partners. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is 
when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and 
Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.